Well, it's wonderful to be with you this morning. I'm just so encouraged. Here we are so early in the morning, and look at all of you. You're here, and you're not just here, but you're here to talk about, think about deep things about God. So already, before we've started, I just feel encouraged uh, to see so many of you eager to learn about God. My uh, task this morning is one that's dear to my heart. Uh, in fact, mentioned that I teach at Midwestern Seminary, but I'm also a pastor in a local church in Kansas City. And uh, this topic is one that I've been able to not just preach, say, from a pulpit, but actually see implemented in very tangible ways in the life of churchgoers just like you, uh, whether it's a Bible study, whether it's a trial with someone who's, going, who's suffering, whatever it may be, uh, I have been able to see this topic implemented in ways that are profound and pastoral, in ways that show me God is truly at work. Before we begin, let's start and ask God for his help before we look at his word. Lord, we are so grateful to be here. We, we don't dare take this for granted. We know, Lord, that we do not deserve any of this. We are sinners. And yet, by your amazing grace, we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have been awakened given a new birth through the Holy Spirit so that our eyes are opened to your glory and grace. Lord, help us now in the time that is in front of us to understand a deep and sometimes a difficult doctrine. Lord, give us humility so that we don't come to your word presumptuous, Give us humility so that we can have faith, faith that seeks to understand. And Lord, most of all, we ask that you would keep us from idolatry. Lord, help us to think theologically in a way that does not domesticate you, that that does, does not tame you. Lord, may we, like Moses, stand behind that rock. And may we be in awe of your incomprehensible, infinite glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the first thing I need to do is give a little bit of a confession and admission. Uh, The topic, I think, on your program is God's immutability. And uh, I realized, oh no. This is such a massive topic. There is no possible way we could cover it. Uh, We would need all day. So I suppose if you want to skip the other events out there, we could stay in this room all day and and contemplate God's immutability. So I'm actually going to focus on just a sliver. Just take one particular angle, looking at what we might call a corollary of immutability, 
Perhaps this word will be new to you. Perhaps for, for some of you, you're quite familiar with it. But it is the word impassibility. Impassibility. And as I trust you will see, this has a lot to do with what it means to say God does not change. Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15. And as you do so, allow me to set the context of this pivotal passage in the story of Israel. A tragic passage, in fact. In 1 Samuel 15, remember Saul, the king of Israel, fails. God promised his king that he would deliver Israel from the Amalekites. And he gave his king every clear command. When God gave Saul the victory, God promised Saul, not only will I give you the victory, but I will continue to bring about my covenant promises that precede you. But... The Lord gave Saul very specific instructions, didn't he? Saul, you are to put to death that wicked king, Agag. And not just that, but you are to devote to destruction all the spoils of war that you could be so tempted to keep. If you know anything about Saul, you can see it coming, can't you? (laughs) Saul rebels. He rebels against the Lord. And the Lord says through the prophet Samuel, I regret, look at verse 11, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned his back from following me and has not performed my commandments. You see, not only did Saul keep Agag and these spoils of victory Not only did he keep everything alive, but when the prophet Samuel confronted Saul, the king justified his actions as if they were in the service to God. Have you ever done that? You rebel against God, but then you spiritualize your own sin, your own actions to justify what you know deep down is actually against what God has said. Except there's a difference between us and Saul, isn't there? Saul is the king of Israel. He is the leader of God's people. How does he do this? If you look at the text, at the chapter, he says, look, Lord, I kept all the animals alive so I could sacrifice them to you. Hmm. What I find so horrifying about Saul's self-justification is the way that he assumes he can manipulate God emotionally. Isn't that the assumption? Underneath is a presumption. Saul thinks he can treat Yahweh like the nations treat their idols. Gods that can be persuaded, handled, changed by the actions of man. But Yahweh is no fool. 
look there at the text, Samuel responds to Saul. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Now listen to what comes next. For presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Here's the heart of Saul. And then Saul hears that devastating announcement, right? You have rejected the word of the Lord, Saul. Now the Lord has rejected you from being king. The Lord has Saul's attention now, doesn't he? He finally, finally, right, at last confesses his sin. But it's too late. Although Saul asks for a second chance, the answer is no. And yet, Saul still thinks, notice the presumptuous, right? How presumptuous he is. He still thinks, I could change God's mind. He seizes Saul's robe. He, it tears, to which Samuel then responds, look at verses 28 through 29. The Lord has torn the kingdom from you, Saul. And he's given it to your neighbor. We know who that's about to be. Don't we? It's David who is better than you. And also, listen up. This is the key line in this this story. Verse 29. And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. For he is not a man that he should have regret. Notice, Samuel confronts the presumptuousness of Saul. How dare Saul think he can treat God as if God can be moved and changed and manipulated like a man. As if God can be changed by Saul's agenda. But didn't God just say, I mean, didn't we just read at the start of 1 Samuel 15... That God did regret making Saul king? What's happening here? Well, on the surface, it could seem like God realized he had made a mistake. He thought Saul was the man for the job. But now he realizes he must change his mind after seeing how rebellious Saul can be. He's overcome with with grief at his own unwise decision. Is that how we should understand the language of the Bible? Well, such an interpretation, I think, would actually undermine God's perfection, wouldn't it? It would undermine God's perfection as if, as if he is a God who can or does make mistakes. It would undermine his trustworthiness, his wisdom. Can we trust a God who makes such a mistake? It would undermine his unchanging nature. 
as if he changes his mind, as if he experiences emotions or what we might call passions that cause him to, to fluctuate all over the place. So then what does it mean when it says God regrets making Saul king? Well, that's a difficult question. And I know it's circling through your mind. How do we interpret? It brings us to a bigger question, doesn't it? How do we, those who want to be faithful to interpreting the Bible, how do we understand how words work? Language how, how is language used? That's an important question, isn't it? Otherwise, we won't understand what Scripture does and does not mean. Well, Scripture oftentimes speaks in a way what we would call anthropomorphic. That's just a complex word to simply mean that Scripture will sometimes use human qualities to speak of a God who is Definitely not human. <laughs> Maybe you picked that up at the end of 1 Samuel 15. But I am a theologian, and so I just can't help myself at this point. I have to introduce you to another theological term. Scripture, at times, also is even more specific than that. It will use what is called anthropopathic. I can barely say it. It's, 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 so, it's so hard to pronounce. Anthropopathic. Language. What does that mean? This occurs whenever Scripture, in fact, we do this all the time in, in our own language, uses human emotions, feelings, or what we might call passions to speak of something or someone who is not human. Now, why in the world would Scripture do that? Of a God who is incomprehensible, without form, without body, Infinite, without measure. Friends, don't you see? Don't you see? Is this not a sign of God's gracious accommodation to us? Us finite creatures. John Calvin, the reformer, explained it this way. He said, and, and I trust some of, there's, there's, Mothers in this room, and there's fathers in this room. I know some of you fathers, you act tough, right? But you mothers know when, when that baby was born, in all of its cuteness, you fathers got right down on your knees, didn't you? And what'd you do? You didn't care who was watching, Right? Like a nurse, you start lisping to that child, looking for any sign, a smile perhaps, just any interaction. You start lisping. You are accommodating yourself to that child. In our own language, we just call this baby talk. <laughs> and we've all seen it. Maybe we've all done it, right? As silly as it may feel, we love that child. And we know there must be some way we can accommodate that child. Well, though it's not a one-to-one correlation, John Calvin says, how much more so when we who are finite creatures stand in such desperate need of this infinite, incomprehensible God to lisp to us? Is this not His gracious accommodation? 
the language of regret, it does communicate, convey something literally true. We'll talk about that in a second. But it's not meant to be interpreted literalistically, in a literalistic fashion, as if God is distraught because he now realized he's made a terrible mistake and he's grieving over this blunder he's committed. There's two reasons that 1 Samuel 15 might use this language of regret. First, it indicates, what does it communicate? It indicates God's total condemnation of Saul's rebellion. It is language we humans immediately recognize, right? We immediately recognize this language because it conveys absolute rejection. The holy God of Israel stands against Saul. He will no longer tolerate this treason. But there's a second reason. It conveys to us as readers that a major shift is occurring in the narrative, in the story of Israel. God's plan all along, God's plan has been to raise up a king after his own heart. And do you see hints of that even in the text itself? This isn't a surprise to God. This is his plan from the beginning, to raise up David. By declaring his regret, God is announcing the new king is on the horizon. And if you keep reading, you'll notice this. When it says, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you, Saul, he has given it to a neighbor. So, what does that mean for us? It means as as Bible interpreters, we come to this passage and we we recognize that Rather than witnessing some type of change in God, an emotional one at that, we are instead witnessing in real time, right there with Samuel, we are witnessing the effects of God's eternal will for Israel in time and history. The church father, Augustine, I think he had it exactly right when he said, Our God is without any change in himself as he is making changeable things, yet all the while undergoing nothing. What Augustine meant, and what Saul learned the hard way, is this. The creator is not the creature. And therefore, our great God is without passions. Maybe that language is foreign to you. What are passions exactly? Passions exist whenever a finite creature is acted upon, affected by, changed by something internal or external to itself. Where there are passions, there is change within due to some type of feeling or emotion that moves you either toward good or towards evil. Now, I'm not ignorant of the fact that here we are just... Goodness, how many miles from Dodger Stadium, right? Now, I have to be, I know I'm going to step on some toes here because there, there was a game last night, and I know there's probably some Dodger fans in the room, and there's probably some Angel fans in the room. I'm, I'm, I know I'm likely to offend one of, one of you, no doubt. But suppose you're sitting at the game. Maybe a friend gave you seats right, right above the dugout. Right? This is a dream come true. 
You could practically hear the players talking. And your team gets up to bat. It's the eighth inning. You're thinking, how in the world are we going to pull this game off? And your favorite player gets up to bat and just crushes it. Home run into left field. And you're jumping out of your seats, right? You're ecstatic. We've got this. The game is won. We're number one, right? I mean, you're, you're, if it wasn't for that security guard right there, right? You just run onto the field, right? And go hug, hug that, that player as he touches home plate. And then comes the ninth inning. Oh, the ninth inning. It's almost as if teams come to the ninth inning holding back, and then they realize, okay, it's the ninth inning. I guess now's the time to let the sparks fly. And the other team gets up to bat. The two outs, right? This is it. We only need one more strike, and we seal the game. And they crush it as well. Home run into right field. And they win. And you're, you're, you're just, well, if you're anything like me, you're probably crying. <laughs> All is lost. What happened? My wife hates watching games with me because she says, you're all over the place. <laughs> I can't watch this with you. It's true. It's very true. But this happens to us in church, doesn't it? Not baseball, but in conversations. Doesn't this happen to you? You come into church, a friend that you haven't seen for a while comes up to you. They say something just incredibly encouraging, and all of a sudden you feel confident. You love being a Christian. And all of a sudden you're, you're kind to other people that day, and you're, you're loving. And you go sit down in your seat, and accidentally you overhear some people you know talking behind you. They're gossiping. They're gossiping about someone you know, a friend. And suddenly... It's like that balloon popped, right? You know this feeling. And suddenly you're overcome with discouragement. Maybe even anger starts to rise up. Perhaps fear, depending on what's being said. Maybe fear. Maybe you're overcome and you feel like, where's God? You see, friends, these are passions. Passions are the movement of the soul. And they can also create passions of your body, can't they? Sometimes of joy, sometimes of great pain. Whether it's sitting at Dodger Stadium and losing the game, or it's hearing someone gossip. You see, these passions, they're not necessarily sinful, are they? but they are entirely creaturely. Because let's just be honest with ourselves, right? We are insufficient in and of ourselves. We are very dependent in nature. In fact, that's how God created us to be, to depend on him. And as needy creatures, passions reveal our deficiency. Whenever we are affected 
the consequence is some type of emotional fluctuation, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. Passions always have the potential to also cause suffering in your life, even loss. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Maybe you're experiencing that right now. Passions may be appropriate for us because we are incomplete apart from God, always attempting to actualize our potential as human beings, being moved to the good and hopefully, hopefully away from the evil. But they are contrary to God, who by definition is perfect because he is absolutely complete in every way. He is entirely self-sufficient. You don't have to turn there, but this reminds me of the book of Acts. In Acts 14, you may remember this passage. It's a wild one, isn't it? Paul and Barnabas heal a man in Lystra. And when the crowd sees it, They say, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And then they say, Barnabas, this must be Zeus. In fact, the priest, I mean, imagine being there. The priest of Zeus comes out with with all kinds of animals behind him saying, let's make sacrifices to Zeus. You can imagine how the apostles, I mean, think about how they, this, this must have felt. Paul, what does he say? We are, we are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In fact, in the Greek language of this text, we could possibly translate and even interpret Paul as saying, Stop! We are men of like passions as you, affected in similar ways as you. That's what he's communicating. Notice, Paul is distinguishing. Why, have you ever asked yourself this question in the midst of so many different contexts? Why, is, why do the biblical authors often go way back to creation? It's talking about God is the creator. Well, here, this is very strategic for Paul, isn't it? He is going to distinguish between the creator who made all things and the creature. Knowing the difference is everything. It's the difference between idolatry and true worship. I think that distinction also explains why Paul is horrified when they call Barnabas Zeus. These gods of Greek mythology are so creaturely, aren't they? One moment they parade their power. You think of Zeus and how he, being the god of the sky, will have thunderbolts just throwing them at his enemies. And the very next moment, they're helpless. They're even pathetic. They're wallowing in defeat, agony. You can't help but pity them. Does that remind you of anything? 
should. They're a lot like us. Just bigger, better versions of us, I suppose. It's for this reason that so many of those brothers and sisters who've come before you throughout church history said, our God, the Christian God, must be called impassable. Our Protestant confessions, in fact, use this language when they say, God is without passions. What do they mean? Well, unlike man, God is not vulnerable. He's not acted upon by someone or something so that he undergoes some type of emotional change. Nor is he by nature fluctuating from one emotional state to another as if he has feelings analogous to ours. Friends, here is what we're after. No one alters God. No one. So that he suffers loss. That word loss is really important, isn't it? It deserves to be highlighted. Remember, this God that we worship, he is the perfect being, a God of infinite life, infinite goodness, infinite blessedness. And so he is complete in every way. He does not change. I mean, imagine this. He does not change, for change implies he must change for what? For the better? Which means something was lacking before? Does he change for the worse? Think of Romans one twenty three. This would violate Paul saying our God is incorruptible. Now, impassibility, there's a reason why we say it in the same breath as God's immutability. If God's nature does not fluctuate, then neither can he or does he undergo some type of emotional change. Now, I know the question floating around in the back of your mind. Wait a minute. Does this mean that God is lifeless, stoic? Does this mean he's apathetic? Well, that character is often due, I think, to a misunderstanding. We think impassibility is an attempt to say something positive, something even psychological about God, as if he's detached, indifferent, inactive, unconcerned, inert, apathetic. However, and this is how our language often works when we talk about a God who is infinite and incomprehensible, sometimes the best thing you can do is say what God is not. And that's exactly what we're doing here. In that sense, it's a negative concept. Not a negative as in it's bad, but negative meaning that its primary purpose is to describe what God is not. For those of you who want to dig into this further, This is called the way of negation. It simply means we negate anything of God that limits his perfection. We deny anything that could be detrimental or deficient in God. So let's take an example. Consider love. Nothing else and no one else caused love to exist in God. Nor does God look to anything or anyone else 
for the actualization, the fulfillment, the completion of his love. Goodness, that might change, if we even took that seriously, that might change everything from popular Christian worship songs we hear on the radio to our own language about God. This is why the church fathers before you had a phrase that they used again and again. They said, God is pure act. That sounds strange. We don't use that language today, do we? What did they mean? All they meant is God is the fullness of life in and of himself. He is maximally alive. And this certifies that he could not be any more loving than he is from all eternity. He is love. Do you realize that? I mean, you try to possess love. You try to act in loving ways. But John says, no, our God is love. And the most Beautiful, absolute sense of that word. He is love in infinite measure. And though it may be very counterintuitive, because we're so used to thinking about theology in terms of how we experience life with one another, so it's very counterintuitive, but in passability, it actually protects God's love, doesn't it? Because it guarantees that His love will not change, as if it could grow weary, as if it must improve to grow strong. Now, impassibility is no doubt one of those concepts that strikes against our human instincts the most. If we were to observe, go back in time and observe the horrors of that were caused by Nazi Germany during World War II. Well, we would notice some peculiar changes taking place even in the church. Because many modern theologians and pastors at that time, out of a good motive, wanting to give hope to people, but then they said something that should raise a bit of suspicion. Yes, they're trying to give hope to a suffering people all over the globe when they asked, where is God? But then they answered, God is there suffering with you. He's in the concentration camp. He's in the gas chamber. Yes, he too hangs dead on the gallows. Of course, this isn't that far removed, is it? Maybe from some of our own experiences. Perhaps... You've been in a Bible study or a prayer meeting when someone shares some terrible tragedy. And we all know that moment, don't we? The awkwardness, the silence, how eager we are to to say something quickly in the midst of that awkward suffering. That's so horrific. And then someone will say, don't worry, don't, don't worry, don't worry. God was just as surprised by that tragedy as you. He was just as overcome as you. You are suffering, yes, but but God is suffering just as you are, right there with you. It sounds comforting at first, doesn't it? Until we stop and think about what would that mean? 
And what are we to make of this? This is a very popular cultural commitment to a God who suffers in his divinity. What do we make of this? Not too long ago, I actually am originally from California, and I've lived both in Southern California, but also Northern California. And my home county, Sonoma County, just north of San Francisco, it was engulfed in flames. It was terrible. There, there was a natural fire in the nearby hills. Of course, you all are very familiar with this. Well, maybe some of you could imagine this. I mean, imagine if you were there and you're, you live there and your house catches on fire that night. You barely escape out the front door. You're so grateful to just get out of the smoke. And then you have a sick feeling in your stomach when you realize your loved one is still inside. The neighborhood starts gathering around, starts watching. What kind of responses do you look for in others at that moment? Suppose the woman next to you is trying to show her sympathy. And she starts screaming uncontrollably, ripping out her hair, gouging out her eyes. Or suppose the man on your right so wants to understand the pain and suffering by those inside that he starts pouring gasoline all over himself and he lights himself on fire. I think, understandably, you would look around not only perplexed, but perhaps outraged at these people until you see that fireman who surveys the burning house and is so acutely aware of the danger inside as well as this turmoil by those within that he refuses to be overcome and moved by these emotional outbursts, overcome by panic. Instead, he runs into the house, rescues your loved one, while others, onlookers, uncontrollably weep. In that moment, we do not really want someone who suffers emotional change. We want someone who is impassable in some sense. Only they are able to save others from that burning house. Did that fireman lack compassion? No. His compassion was the most effective of all. While the compassion of others led to emotional meltdowns, personal panic attacks, and irrational behavior, the compassion of the firemen led him and him alone to act in the most heroic way possible. He did not need to suffer himself to act, to even be compassionate towards those inside. Similarly, though this we have to be careful, right? This is not an exact one-to-one comparison with God, but in a similar way, we do not really want a God who suffers in his divinity, despite what our instincts might say at first. Such a God may be like us, which could give us some short-term initial comfort, I suppose, but he cannot help us, let alone redeem us from all of the evil we experience in this world. In fact, we need a God who is not merely impassable by choice, voluntarily like this fireman, but we need a God who is impassable by nature. This isn't merely something he chooses to do on some occasion. He is impassable. Listen to Augustine again. Listen to how he prays. You, Lord, my Lord God, you are the lover of souls. Show compassion 
that is far purer and freer of mixed motives than ours, for no suffering injures you. Now, if God is impassable and Jesus is the Son of God, then how can God remain impassable when we know that Jesus suffered and died on the cross? That's a very good question. Thank you. It's also a very hard one. Well, there's a couple things we could say in our limited amount of time. First, we could say this. We must distinguish carefully And I hope you do this even when you are reading the New Testament. We must be careful to distinguish between the two natures of Christ. Remember those church fathers I mentioned a minute ago? Many of them gathered together at a critical moment in the survival of the church. They gathered together to guard the church from all different types of heresies around the person of Christ. They did this in the 5th century, and they even wrote a few paragraphs about it. In fact, if you go home, you could just Google it. You could read it in five minutes. It's called The Definition of Chalcedon. Why did they write this? It's one of the most beautiful, one of the most important several paragraphs that have ever been written in the history of the church. Why did they write this? Well, they instructed the church, be careful. Don't confuse, don't mix the two natures with one another on the one hand. And at the same time, they said, don't go to the other extreme. Don't divorce those two natures from one another on the other hand. Christ's divine nature and Christ's human nature. They said, we must confess one person, the one person of Christ, in two natures, but without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. You see, by attributing human passions directly to, say, Christ's divine nature, we, we run the risk of confusing the two natures, subjecting both to change. Friends, this is simply humanizing divinity. So yes, it's a right instinct. It's a good instinct to stress the unity of this incarnate God-man. And at the same time, those who have come before you, they warned Christians just like you to be careful, to preserve the distinction of these natures so that they are by no means taken away by the union of the person of Christ. When we resist the temptation to confuse, to confuse attributes of, say, the human nature with the divine nature, they said, well, the property of each neighbor is preserved. It concurs in one person, as mysterious as that may be. That person, they said, is simultaneously not parted or divided into two persons, but there continues to be one and the same Son, the only begotten, God the Word, to use John's language, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this can be seen very practically when we ask a question like this. Who, who is it that is suffering at the cross? 
Answer, the person of the Son. After all, he is the one who has, as John says, John chapter 1, the word became flesh. But if we were to ask a slightly different question, we theologians love to do this, don't we? What? What is the manner by which this son undergoes that suffering? Well, our answer should sound a little different. The son suffers as a man. For the Son of God has assumed a human nature. He is not only true God, but true man. One of my favorite, I know I've been quoting uh, Augustine, but one of my other favorite fathers is Gregory of Nazianzus. He said it this way. He said, Christ is passable in his flesh, but he is impassable in his Godhead. I think this is why Paul in Ephesians can pray in a very specific way. He can say to these Ephesians, pay careful attention to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Have these passages ever just stuck out to you? What do you mean? God? Blood? Or think, for example, about 1 Corinthians 2.8. Paul says, None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. What's happening? You see, there's a tragic irony for those who say, I want nothing to do with impassibility. For if Christ suffers in his divine nature, then he is not actually suffering as a man. But isn't this exactly what they are after? A Jesus who is like us and therefore who can relate to us, as the author of Hebrews says. The person of Christ suffers, but the manner in which he undergoes that suffering is by means of his humanity. As counterintuitive as it may seem, if Christ suffers in his deity at the cross, for example, or if the Father and the Spirit are also suffering too with him, then we have actually excluded the Son from suffering for us on behalf of humanity. As one theologian has said, having locked suffering within God's divine nature, we have locked God out of human suffering. If the Son of God is going to act on our behalf, as Isaiah 53 says, as our suffering servant, then it's critical that we honor his suffering as truly human. To segregate such suffering to his divinity is to empty suffering in the incarnation from its effectiveness entirely. If God were passable, a God of passions, would that change the gospel and its promise for the Christian life? Absolutely. If God undergoes these passions we mentioned, emotional change, if his perfections, his essence, his divinity, his works fluctuate in response to the creature, 
then it is reasonable to wonder whether God's promises, Christ's saving work to fulfill those promises, and the application of those promises, both now and in the future, are entirely certain. So I realize that this is, these are the deep things of God, but this has real-life implications for you as a Christian. If God's perfections change, if He fluctuates from one emotional state to the next, then His promises might change as well. A passable God would leave us. It would leave you in a state of anxiety, unsure whether He will remain constant in who He is and what He has said. His wrath would not be just because his retribution is potentially uncontrollable. His love would not be steadfast for you, as the Psalms say over and over again. Because a passable love guarantees no certainty of devotion. You see, impassibility is the basis on which God's steadfast love and justice are built. The cross is a case in point. It is precisely because God does not suffer that he is able to send his son, his only begotten son, to suffer for us as a man, manifested in the flesh, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.16. So yes, the person of the son suffers on the cross in the fullness of his humanity. Yet he is able to do so because suffering does not victimize him in the first place. (coughs) If God is just as much a victim of suffering as we are, then he is helpless, powerless, and hopeless to embark on a rescue mission. This is not the picture that we see in the Gospels, is it? The Gospels portray the Son of God fully in control of his mission. Our Lord set his face towards Calvary. He announced, he even predicted his redemptive suffering, putting on full display his total sovereignty. Not only does impassibility guarantee that Christ can save you, a sinner, but again, it guarantees that God's love and his grace are free. If God is passable, then his love is contingent on the creature, dependent on the creature for its fulfillment. It is incomplete. Some will object that a real give and take relationship requires a passable God of a passable love, a love that is mutually dependent, changed by the one it loves. However, passable love is entirely conditioned on humans. Grace is no longer free. Mercy no longer a gift. Love no longer gratuitous. God must look to those outside of himself for for the fullness of his love. Friends, when the Bible teaches us about God's love, and I hope you know this personally, Don't ever forget what it says. God's love is unconditional. It is free, purely altruistic. 
Why? Because this love is impassable. It does not look to the creature for its effectiveness. It is rooted in God's unchanging nature. In the end, only a God who does not suffer loss can accomplish redemption for a suffering humanity who is lost. Only one who is impassable can become incarnate as the suffering servant. And only one who, whose love depends on no one can offer grace that is free of charge. Do you remember those famous words from that famous hymn, Rock of Ages? Does this not echo the Psalms at so many points? As David himself hid in the rock, afraid for his life. You know the words, don't you? Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Let's pray. Lord, impassibility, we admit it is so counterintuitive to us today. Lord, we live in a culture that idolizes our human passions. How prone we are to think of you in a way that is so human. The way our culture has influenced our thinking about you means that your perfection as the impassable God is so foreign to us. But Lord, without it, we risk confusing Zeus with you, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who said, I am who I am. Lord, we confess we risk making you a lot like us, making you in our image. Lord, we know this is the essence of idolatry. So, Lord, we ask you, we beg you this morning to humble us. Help us to see your impassibility so that here at this church, we may create an idolatry-free zone. May this church be a church in which your people worship you in spirit and in truth. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.